Hey everybody, welcome to Trinity's online service. My name is Chris McDaniel, the lead pastor here on the West Side, and we are so thankful to have you with us today. Before we get into the sermon, which today comes from Mark chapter 6, I want to share some really good news and what I think is a really important update for us as a church. So first, the good news. Uh, we made the New York Times, Atlanta did, and finally for something good. Uh, we were listed as one of those major cities in America where positivity rates are really low relative to COVID. I think we're sitting in the metro at about 1.4% positivity rate, which is great news. Um, we also see in Atlanta, maybe not as great news um, in the sense that we're about 44% fully vaccinated with about 49% of us at 49, 49% uh, of us with one dose, which I think is good. And yet I would just say, if you're on the fence, this might be a great time for you to get that vaccination. If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But getting those numbers as high as they can is good for all of us in the city. Here's what, what I want to say to you. We're going to go back on August 1st to our pre-COVID service times, uh, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and 6 o'clock on Sundays. If you've been a part of Trinity on the West Side, you know that up until now, we've been at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 with no evening service. And those services are a little tight. They're a little shorter than they used to be. Um, we're going to move to what we used to do before COVID in the sanctuary. So no registration will be required beginning on, on August 1st in the sanctuary, and we're really excited. Here's, here's what you need to know, though. Those services in sections will be mask optional, and then in another section will be distanced and mask mandatory. So if you require a mask for any reason, whether you're unvaccinated or you just don't feel comfortable um, being maskless and being crammed in with other people, we're going to have a section in all of our services for you. And we're, we're super excited about being able to create space for both groups. In addition to that, our chapel is going to be open as a masked and distanced space for those of you who would prefer to be in another room. And we'll have audio coming in, maybe even video for those services. So we're going to be doing that uh, starting on the 1st of August. Now, more info will be coming regarding kids ministry and how we're going to be tackling kids ministry. So stay tuned. What we guarantee you is by the 1st, as we work with our vestry and our leadership team, we're going to have information about kids and grownups and all the different things, y'all. But exciting things are coming, and we're really, really looking forward to what God has for us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. I'm going to warn you that today is a really tough text. Um, this is uh, one of those passages in the Bible that when it comes to us, we sit with it and we say, Lord, show us what you can help us to see here. But I'm just going to say today is about the murder of John the Baptist. And this is a dark and difficult passage. But I think the Lord has something for us here. And so I hope you will track with me as we read verses uh, 14 to 28. So a long passage detailing the death of John the Baptizer. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came 
when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you even half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guest, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we, in a moment like this, reading such a tragic and and terribly sad passage from the Bible, it's hard for us to say thank you, to give thanks. And yet we do give you thanks because, Lord, there's something here for us. I pray today that you would help us to think about John's life and his death and to think about what caused his death, sin. And so, Lord, we pray in your mercy that you would help us to think about sin, sin as it relates to us, as it manifests in us. And I pray that we would do that with hope and with clarity and with confidence that when we see our sin and repent of it, that you begin to work healing in our own lives. We ask for your mercy to think true and deep thoughts about the Bible today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. John the baptizer is one of the greatest human beings to ever live. Jesus actually said that. He said, there's no one born of women as great as John. And what we see in this passage is a tragically sad story. This is how one of the greatest humans to ever live is murdered because of a a promise made at a party from an old man to his stepdaughter. There is so much in this story that is, is wrong, feels slimy and gross. I would argue, and this is what we're going to reflect on today, that this text highlights three significant sins, lust, manipulation, and violence. And what we're going to do today is we're going to think about lust, manipulation, and violence. And this is really uncomfortable because many of us, we don't want to think about how those things hurt us. And we certainly probably are uncomfortable thinking about how those things come from us and injure and hurt other people. And yet if we're honest, it's my conviction that lust, manipulation, and violence are regular tools of the trade for almost all of us. I would argue all of us who are listening to my voice today. We do it without even thinking about it. We engage in these sins just like they manifest in this story, but maybe in more subtle ways and in ways that we don't name or acknowledge and yet ways that have really detrimental impact on our lives and the lives of other people. So the first thing I want to say to us today is this. Sin is a flooding of the banks. It's the result of overblown desire. The word for sin in the Greek New Testament, hamartia, means to miss the mark. When we sin, we miss the intended purpose, the thing that God has for us, the bullseye, the right way, and we bump it off and we miss it by a little bit or by a lot. 
And I think that one of the ways that we can understand sin, which is something that many of us don't want to think about very often, is that sin is what happens when our desire or our instincts or our thought processes or our behaviors flood and therefore miss the mark of what they were intended to be. A river is really life-giving when it's within its banks. But when a river floods its banks, it becomes a source of widespread destruction. Sin is the same way. And so what I want to challenge us to do at this point is to think about the places where we are overflowing our banks. I believe that there's a real invitation for us to be the kinds of people who grow by honest assessment of who we are and where we are. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. He says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. He says again, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. I believe that when sin comes into our lives and takes ownership over us, and many of us, as we hear what we're going to talk about today, there is a redeemed version of desire. But when desire becomes a master to us, when it overflows its banks and takes a place of preeminence, bad things happen. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And many of us, we don't want to think about that because we're afraid of death. We're afraid of the consequences of death. And yet, if we look at our lives, sin puts space between us and God. It also puts space between us and others. And maybe right now you're feeling the effects of distance between you and somebody you really care about because things are not as they ought to be. That's the effect of sin. And we don't have to be mean about it or fundamentalist about it to take seriously the reality that sin does something to our souls and to the relationships and the ecosystems around us. It's both individual and it's sort of systemic and collective. Sin is painful. And God doesn't want us to live in that state of impaired living, impaired relating to him, to one another, to the world around us. He wants life for us, not death. So the first thing that we have to do is acknowledge that sin is overblown. Sin is what happens when mastery occurs in your life. Your appetites, they make wonderful servants, but terrifying masters. Archbishop Kalini, who was the Archbishop of Rwanda at the time, right after the genocide, he once told me that when he came and visited our church. He said, our appetites make wonderful servants, but terrifying masters. And so an important thing for us as we think about the the three sins that we see manifest in this text is where are these things in a place of mastery? Where have they overgrown? Where have they overgrown and flooded their banks? So the second thing in the first sin, lust. Sometimes we think we know what lust is. And and we're partly right, but maybe not completely. I would define for our purposes today, lust is obsessive desire. Dallas Willard, uh, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, he called it that. He said, lust is obsessive desire. It's desire gone too far. And while it's typically thought of, lust is, in terms of sexual desire, it's not limited to sexual desire. Lust is something that just moves beyond what it ought to be. And so in this instance, Herod is guilty of lust in two ways. First, he's, he's, he's brought into a place of desire concerning his stepdaughter, which is so dark. There's lust there at play. But he's also desirous to 
appear important and significant to the people who are guests at the party, that's also a form of lust, this desire for power and approval. And so Herod's guilty of lust in more than one way. And I would argue that for many of us, if we don't watch our own souls, we become unaware of the fact that desire sometimes pushes beyond where it ought to be. So where's your desire flooded its banks? See, when we want something, even when it's not something meant for us, and we shortcut our way to get there, that's lust. And it hurts us and it hurts people around us. So where, where are the shortcuts at play in your life? I think that's a, a real invitation in a passage like this. Where are we tempted to shortcut our way to get what we want? This, the second sin and the third movement in this passage is manipulation. And manipulation, which we see in Herodias and, and her daughter, they manipulate Herod in this moment. Manipulation is shrewd or devious management of people and resources. We manipulate when we move people for our own gain and our own purposes. We manipulate to gain a, a leveraged position, power and advantage over people. Sometimes people we love, but sometimes people we just want to use and step over in order to get where we want to go or to get what we want. But we also manipulate when we manage our reputation or our image in ways that um, are not helpful and not utterly real. Many of us, I think, are victims of manipulation on a daily basis. Social media is a tool for manipulation where we have an image of something that's not quite real. It's real enough to dupe us, but not real. And then we begin to believe things that are not true about ourselves and about the world around us. But we're not only manipulated, we, in many ways, struggle with the temptation to manipulate other people, to get people to do what we want, to make us feel better, to gratify our own desires. We sometimes play with people's emotions or we do things that we know if we stop and step back and think are not really God's best and not really clean in relationships. And yet we do them because we get a payoff. What we see in this story about Herod and Herodias is that she was willing to manipulate in order to get something that she wanted. She didn't like John the baptizer because he called out her sin in a former marriage when she married now another man. And there was darkness at play there and John was one of the few people willing to say, this isn't really, this isn't right. And in order to get revenge, she manipulated people around her and a death occurs. And that leads me to the fourth movement and the third sin, which is violence. Violence is using force or power with intention to harm. And many of us, we think about violence and we think, well, I, you know, I've not punched someone in the face recently. That's not the only way to enact violence. I think violence happens all the time and it's um, rarely in a sophisticated culture, um, people coming to fisticuffs. Sometimes it does involve that. The violence happening in Haiti right now is uh, devastating, sobering. Our, our church, ha we have longstanding friendships and partnerships in Haiti and specifically in Port-au-Prince and Guadeloupe-Bouquet. And right now our friends are hiding for their lives because marauding gangs are wandering the streets of a city that we love and believe God loves. That's violence. But what that is, is that's a kind of gloves off, bare knuckled violence. 
But many of us who live in quiet neighborhoods and have stable jobs, we experience and enact violence on a daily basis. Physical violence, verbal violence, gossip is a form of violence, emotional deprivation and physical deprivation, that is a form of violence. Violence is when we use force or power in order to harm or to manipulate someone in ways that diminish their own humanity. And the violence here is gloves off. And I believe there's an invitation for us to see where we have our own gloves on violence, more subtle forms of violence. Here's the thing I know. If we're honest thinking about lust, manipulation, and violence. All of these sins involve taking what is not ours to take, or maybe stated more clearly, using people as a means to an end. See, if we view one another as individuals, and if we view people collectively as a means to an end, something we can consume or use or step beyond, then we don't actually have to think about humanity. We don't have to think about the humanity of two people. Many of us, if we could step back from the heat of the moment, we would think, I'd never speak to a person in a way that demeaned or degraded them. I would never enact violence in the way that we see in a text like this. And yet, I believe that one of the invitations for all of us is to say, where am I, an image bearer of God, tempted to treat other image bearers in ways that are less than God's best? And I believe that if we're courageous enough, we will see that we sin. And rather than trying to distance ourselves from sin and pretend that we're not as guilty as we really are, I believe there's an invitation for us to say, I, I am guilty of sin. What do I do about that? See, before we can fix the sin, we have to see the sin. Y'all, lust is violent. It's one of the things that I think grieves me the most about pornography is that pornography is detaching yourself from the humanity of the person that you are watching and forgetting that she or he is a, an image bearer, someone who has a mom, a dad, someone who's not an object to be consumed. And yet, if we separate ourselves through mediums that are digital or um, we're able to kind of trick ourselves into thinking that that isn't an act of violence, I believe that one of the things that we have to see is that manipulation and lust and violence are all sins that we struggle with on a daily basis. And yet, if we can step back and say, God, help me recalibrate my vision of what is true and right and good, then we begin to maybe abhor the things that are not good. See them for what they are, not just what we get from them in the moment, but what they're really doing. People are not objects to be consumed. And the minute that we get a clearer revelation of that truth, then I'm less likely to consume a person as if they were food or drink. I'm less likely to use a person for my own gratification or for my own betterment and improvement, stepping over them and pushing them to the side. People are not disposable. I'm just going to say that again. People are not disposable. We live in a world where we forget this. John the baptizer is an eternal being. 
He is with God in heaven and one day will walk a resurrected earth with you if you belong to Jesus. And yet he was treated as a disposable unit in this moment. Where are we tempted in more subtle ways to treat people as disposable units? People are eternal. You are an image bearer. The person you hate is an image bearer. And we have to treat people as eternal beings. And when we don't, we injure one another. I believe that thoughtless consumption is a core and root manifestation of sin. And it's my conviction that we engage in these sins because we have a a wrong view or a perverse view of humanity and God and ourselves. So I believe that the macro invitation for all of us is to recalibrate our view of God and people and who we are as image bearers of God. But before we can do that, we have to actually see the sin. See, I wish that uh, there was a kind of pithy lesson in this story, but I'm struck by the way this story ends. This story doesn't end with, and now here's your lesson in order to do the right thing and never make this mistake. Here's how the text ends. I'm going to read it again so we'll see where the thing stops. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, the beheading of John, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This story ends with a stark and tragic reminder of the consequences of sin. So rather than rush to the happily ever after, we're meant to see John be buried with no head, buried headless. I believe that we need to see our sin and look at our sin through a lens of the hope of the gospel of the goodness and forgiveness that come to us in Jesus. And then and only then can we begin to move toward more redemptive outcomes. So today, it's about sin. I'm going to pose a couple of questions for your consideration. And I want to offer a disclaimer. Typically, we say, um, if you're in a group, discuss. If you're on your own journal. And I would just make one amendment to this because of the nature of the questions I'm going to ask you to consider. I think our primary default here should be private personal journaling because this is really raw. Unless you are in really intimate company where you can have these conversations in safe ways, I would encourage this to be more private and personal reflection. If you are in intimate space where you can share these things, then thanks be to God for the depth of those relationships. Please interact together. But here are the questions. They'll come up on the screen. You can hit pause. Number one, are there areas where you are tempted to overflow your banks? Name and reflect on those areas specifically. Where are you tempted to go beyond the pale, over the line? Number two, reflect on the shortcuts you're tempted to take in life at this time. How are these shortcuts akin to lust? And think about lust going beyond just sexual desire. Lust is going beyond obsessive desire. Where are you tempted to take shortcuts at this time in your life? And number three, how is violence prone to manifest in your heart and life at this time? How is violence prone to manifest? And I don't mean punching someone in the face, maybe, but it might be more subtle than that. I pray that God would cover us as we reflect on these questions and that we would see where we are in order to see where God wants to take us.
Today, if this is your church, it's an opportunity for you to receive communion and to, to give to support our mission. And so I just want to say, if you um, haven't done so, you can come up to Trinity and grab communion kits in our office so you can receive communion in your homes together in community. And if this is your church, it's an opportunity for you to visit our website. You can give to support our mission. But I just want to say to those of you who are guests or maybe sticking your toe back in the water after a long time away, every single thing is taken care of. We are just so thankful that you are here worshiping with us today online. Now let's pray these words Jesus has taught us to pray. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you when we see you. Amen. Amen.